morning. This, uh, there is no evening service because of it being a holiday weekend, so there won't be any uh, Sunday evening service. When I was in uh, Bible college, uh, my roommate, uh, every once in a while, would go down to where his parents lived in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and as we uh, drove down there, sometimes I'd go with him, uh, on the way back, his mom was always worried that he was going to starve to death, and so she would pack extra food uh, for him and give him groceries and so forth so that he could bring back to the dorm, even though the cafeteria had plenty of food, but uh, she was always worried about that, that he was going to starve up there in Bible college, and so um, she'd pack all that food, and, and some of that care that she had for her son has rubbed off on me, and I'm worried that you won't have a Bible study this evening, so I'm going to kind of do extra today, so we'll do two hours instead of one so that you can, you can have the weekend, okay? I'm just kidding. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 17 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, 17 through 22, if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Verse 17, this is the word of the Lord. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling, dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray as we look at this passage, it, it might be very convicting for some of us, Father. I pray your Spirit would illumine our minds and Show us of those things we need to repent of. Father, show us those things that we need to change. We know it's your will that we become formed to the image of your Son, that we look and behave and think like he does. Father, I pray that this text will work for that purpose. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Certain things bring people together. For example, sports. Uh, strangers uh, find themselves cheering on the same team. They're cheering and cheering, and, and sometimes sports brings individuals together, people that wouldn't know each other in any other context. Uh, they're cheering the team, watching the team together. Hobbies. Hobbies sometimes bring people together. Uh, we had uh, missionaries Michael Dunlop sharing about how he enjoys roasting coffee, and he's been able to meet other people and uh, share with them his passion for uh, roasting coffee and been able to present the gospel with them. Uh, which, by the way, we uh, have taken on for monthly support the Jansons and the Dunlops. Uh, we are supporting them. In fact, if you go out this door straight uh, by where the donuts are, you'll see a lovely board that has uh, their pictures on it and their uh, information so that you can be praying for them. And I would encourage you to be considering them, how you can maybe help them by going or praying. 
uh, preferably going, but if you, if you can't go, then, then pray for them and, and give. But there are certain hobbies that bring us together. In nationality, uh, I've heard that over in Katy, uh, there's a large population of Venezuelans, and so they've nicknamed it Katy Suela, uh, like Venezuela. Uh, certain things, we gravitate to those things. Uh, religion, different religious groups, they express their worship and uh, they, they come together. Uh, it's interesting that Baptist, uh, for a long time, they thought Baptist came from Anabaptist, which was uh, developed in Germany. Anabaptist is not the sister of John the Baptist. Uh, the Anabaptists were this group, but then they found out later on that uh, it really came from a group of, of separatists in England. And this uh, group of separatists, uh, they were separating and they end up becoming what is Baptist. So uh, that kind of falls in our heritage. And so Baptists don't tend to be very well mingling with other people, but other religious groups do a very good job at mingling one with another. Uh, common ground is usually something very good that people leverage to find community, uh, find friendship, uh, pursue common goals. For example, if one of your hobbies is to cook and you're meeting with other people that enjoy cooking as well, you exchange recipes and techniques and so forth so that you are able to uh, cook better. So there's a pursuit of common goals. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes, sometimes we can have artificial or Shallow, shallow standards for unity. Uh, these are standards that we impose uh, and, and we think that we have to have these things so that there can be unity. Uh, for example, some do age. They say, it, it, for me to have unity in a group, I must be able to look at the group and see people my age, whatever age that is. And if I don't see people my age, then I, I'm really not going to have any unity in that in that group. It's an artificial, it's an artificial standard. Education. They must have my level education, or <laughs> uh, they can't be too educated because I I don't have education. And so uh, if I go and there's a bunch of educated people, I'm not going to feel good. And so uh, education sometimes becomes, or, or they must look like me. As in, they must have the same brand of clothing that I wear, the same styles, the, the, the same thing. And if we had this in common, then we can be united. Um, unfortunately, these are artificial standards that tend to isolate people more than to bring unity. Uh, I call them artificial standards because they're not standards that God established for community, for friendship. God establishes on the base of community on, on his glory, those who pursue to glorify God, or uh, his holiness, those who are in pursuit of being holy as God is holy, of being righteous and just, of pursuing the good works for which he has established you. In, in God's community, if we were going to take that to be in the church, we have... Um, older people investing into younger people. So you can't really have a community of a bunch of people my age or your age because you have to have a dynamic of older people investing in younger, as in older men investing in discipling younger men, older women discipling and investing in younger women. Those are the standards that God establishes for community. But sometimes we allow our artificial, our shallow standards to be the, the basis by which we have a community. Now, 
looking at this, what we've been looking at here, we must not isolate from the context of what we've seen in chapter 1 in the first part of chapter 2. Because here it's going to be talking about a unity that exists. But this unity is not in, uh, isolated from the pursuit of glorifying God. We see that God predestined us according to his kind intention so that we could be in his inheritance, 114. Our salvation is to the praise of his glory. It glorifies God to bestow his grace on us who are sinners separated from God. So this unity is not different from the glory of God. Rather, what unites us is the pursuit of glorifying God with our lives. As we see this, we must pursue this. That's what's going to bring unity. As we're pursuing to glorify God with our life, uh, we will become more and more unified. Now, what we'll look at today is that Christ preached to you to make you a fellow citizen and to build you up with other believers. That's what we'll be looking at. Christ preached to you to make you a fellow citizen and to build you up with other believers. And we'll see the first point is Christ preached peace, verse 17 and 18. Christ preached peace. It starts off by saying, and he came. And this is a, an important part to think about when we start thinking about salvation. Because as we think about salvation, it wasn't, and I pursued God, or I decided to look to God, or I started contemplating God and I started going after him. The one who took the initial step was God. God started the process, and he came. It wasn't that uh, I said, you know what? Uh, I think I'm going to pursue God today. No. God takes the first step. He, he planned salvation even before the foundation of the world. He planned what was going to happen, and he sent his spirit, and the spirit convicts of sin. God takes the first step, and it, it's a participle. It ends up uh, being used as an kind of almost an adjective of describing what Christ does is he is coming, he is uh, pursuing after. And, and in this pursuit, it says he preached peace. That, that word preached is, um, is, is really the idea, idea of proclaiming. Uh, so it's not preached as like in a sermon, but it's the idea of proclaiming something. And it's, it's used... Uh, in the more broad sense, to proclaiming any type of good news. Yet you can imagine for a moment that uh, you're on your way home, you haven't been home for a long time, and you're on your way home, and uh, you arrive to your home, and uh, maybe one of your siblings is there, and they tell you, uh, mom or dad or whoever, uh, has cooked, and, and they tell you it's, it's your favorite dish. I mean, the one that you really love. And, you're, of course, your mouth just starts to water. You're like, hot dog, right? I'm going to get to eat this. Now, what did the person do? All they did was announce something good, something very favorable. That's all they did. Now, in the context that we have here, this uh, announcing is the message of the gospel. It's the proclamation of the gospel. It's, it's the good news of a divine message of salvation. That's how it's being used in this sense. Now, what did Jesus preach? As it says here, he preached or he proclaimed peace. Peace. 
It's the idea of being in harmony with someone else. As in that there's no longer a hostility, but there is peace. Now, this seems to be in accordance with what Jesus said that we find in the Gospels. It seems like Luke, uh, Paul is in accordance with what Jesus said. For example, in John chapter 14, verse 27, it says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives uh, do I give to you. Uh, do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. God, Christ is there speaking to his disciples, and he tells them that he is giving peace. So what Jesus, uh, Paul writes here is that Jesus preached peace. It seems like it goes in accordance with John chapter 14. Also in John chapter 16, verse 33, it says, These things I have spoken to you, so that uh, in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So Jesus warns his disciples, there's going to be tribulation, this world will be against you, uh, but he is giving peace. So it seems like it's in accordance with what Paul's written here, Jesus came and preached peace. But if we dig down a little bit deeper, we kind of also see a different message that Jesus presented while here on earth. And you can find it in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, we see uh, specifically verse 34. Uh, Matthew 10, 34 says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come uh, to bring peace, but a sword. Now, as we look at this context, over in, in verse 5, Jesus is addressing directly to his disciples, and he's giving them more specific information about the kingdom and what the kingdom life is going to be like. And he tells them in verse 5 that he is, um, uh, as he's going to send them out, he, he ends up saying that he's sending them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Further on down the way, he tells them that he's going to send them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Uh, here's what I've got for you to do. You're going to be like a sheep in the middle of wolves. Like, that's your mission. Uh, it doesn't sound like a very good mission. It, Jesus, furthermore, tells them, he sets up a contrast between uh, them for their love for him and their love for other things. And he says over in um, verse 37, uh, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So he puts as a contrast between uh, loving Christ and loving one's parents. As in, if you l try to love them both, you're not going to. And he also puts in contrast loving Christ and loving your kids. Now, we've all seen these families that they, they, they orbit around, the family orbits around their kids and whatever the kids want. And however the kids are feeling that day, I mean, that's, that's how the day is going to be. Everything orbits around them. And, and Christ says, no, I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. And you're going to have to decide between loving your parents on one side and loving me. Loving your kids on one side or loving me. So now it kind of seems that what Paul is presenting here doesn't really concur with Christ's message. So we have to say, 
Uh, with whom do, do we have peace? With whom do we have peace? Well, it can't be with people. We don't have peace with people. Matthew 10, 34 says that. The point is that we don't have peace with people. And it's not peace with the world. John 16, 33. We're going to have tribulation in the world. We're going to have trouble in the world. So if it's not with people and it's not with the world, what else is left? I mean, <laughs> who else can we have peace with? What else is there? If it's not with the world and if it's not with people... I think looking contextually at Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22, uh, we end up having peace with God. Now, there's two aspects here as we look at this contextually. The first is an objective peace that we have with God in that as the person accepts Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, Christ's righteousness gets put onto them. So that when God sees you, he does not see all your sins and your evil doings, but he sees Christ's righteousness, and therefore there is peace. But there is also a subjective aspect to this, this, this peace. And that subjective aspect of the peace is that, as he mentions, the context of Jew and Gentile. There's a barrier between the two, one thinking themselves more privileged than the other because the promises and the covenants came through one and not through the other. And there is peace between the two because it establishes a new creature, a new man. Now, we can take this a step further. Contextually, is talking about between the Jew and the Gentile, but we also know that there's a subjective aspect of peace that is brought on through Christ even in our relationships between husband and wife. There should be, as we pursue God, a peace in the family, but anyone that's married can say it's not always peaceful. And there should be a peace between parents and children, but anyone that has kids can say it's not always peaceful. Even with the best intentions of, that one can have, things aren't always peaceful. I heard of a man, he... Um, he saw his wife. His wife uh, wanted to uh, donate her clothes to Goodwill. And he said, why do you want to do that? You have to drive all the way there, and you got to pack everything up and take it over there. Why, why do that? And, and she said, look, the, the situation is just really rough. I mean, there's, there's women out there that are, are poor, and they're starving, and, and, and Goodwill will sell the clothes for, for cheap. And the husband says to her, uh, honey, uh, anyone that can fit in your clothes is not starving. Now, he has the best intentions trying to help her to not take her clothes all the way to Goodwill. Uh, but I'm not sure that there was peace in that home after that comment. I'm not sure things just developed kindly there. Now, through Christ, through Christ, there is peace objectively with God. And there can be peace in homes as they pursue God. There can be peace between Gentile and Jew, or between anybody else as they pursue Christ. Now, this piece, Paul makes the reference of, it, of Isaiah 57, verse 19. Uh, in Isaiah 57, 19, it talks about this aspect of peace for those who are near and those who are far. If we look at the context there, uh, verses 1 and 2, uh, talks about the righteous. 
It's just only two verses for the righteous, and in those two verses for the righteous, it's kind of a, a kind of a, a, a dim thing that one thinks about the righteous. It says the righteous die, and who who's aware of it? Who who knows that the righteous has died? Nobody. Nobody pays attention when the righteous die. Yeah, we can't really relate very well to verses one and two, but then it goes from verses three all the way to verse uh, thirteen. Ten verses talking about the unrighteous. And unfortunately, it, it kind of, we feel at home there. We, we can see ourselves in those, those verses. And, and we realize that's where we are. We're the unrighteous. And then from 14 uh, forward, all the way down, it talks about a work that God is, is doing. And, and it specifically in that context is talking about Israel who is deported. There's some that are living in Israel and there's some that are living outside of Israel and that God is going to bring them back together. Paul takes that text of of a future working and he applies it in the church that through Christ he's making a new creature. A new person that doesn't have any type of race but is found in Christ who is the head. This is the work that he is doing. And he uses this passage to, to apply it to the church. Now as we look at this, we have to ask ourselves some questions. When did Christ preach peace? When did he preach peace? And we can answer this in a couple different ways, uh, or some have interpreted it in different ways. One is during his earthly ministry. And, and that seems to make sense. I mean, you can go to Matthew 10, 13, where he's telling his disciples as they go out and they go and they preach, if the household uh, opens the door and accepts you, give them your peace. If they reject you, then you withdraw your peace and you go on. So it seems like maybe during Christ's ministry is when he preached peace. Some say, no, it's not then. Rather, it's uh, uh, during his post-resurrection appearance. So Christ dies. Christ dies. And um, before he ascends, there's that time where he goes and he's there in the upper room. Remember, the doors are closed. And uh, the disciples are gathered there with other people. They're, they're all gathered there. And um, uh, Christ just appears in the midst of them, it says. And as he appears in the midst of them, they're all scared. And he says, peace to you. So it seems like he's proclaimed peace. And uh, that could be. But it seems like contextually there's another option that pre- uh, Jesus preaches through the saved. Jesus preaches through the saved. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, it says that God has established Christ as the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. And as the head of the church, the church is his body. So as we preach, as we announce peace to individuals, as we give them the gospel, it is as Christ preaching through us. How does Christ preach now? He preaches through us as we give that message. He does this work through us. That's an amazing thing to to think about as we participate in the work that God is doing to save individuals, to rescue them from their sins. Now, what should be proclaimed? What should we be proclaiming? Well, Christ made the good news possible through his death. Christ is both the agent of peace as in he's the one who accomplished it, and he is the message of peace. 
It is through preaching Jesus Christ, his death for you, and putting your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross to save you of your sins, where you can be saved. Who in here would say, I will approach God on my own righteousness? I am so good, and I am so worthy that I will go before God and say, accept me. You'd have to be delusional to think that. <laughs> You'd have to be totally crazy to think that. God is a holy God. Only those who approach God through Jesus Christ can be saved. Now, we're not trying to spread our political party. We're not trying to uh, persuade people with our nationalism. As it mentions here, Jews and Gentiles. We're not trying to do that. that. That's not our message. That's not what we're trying to proclaim to individuals. We are trying to proclaim Christ. He is both the agent of peace and the message of peace. And if an individual is going to have peace with God and peace with one another, it will be because they have gone through Jesus Christ. Now, not only does Christ preach peace, but Christ changed your citizenship. Christ changed your citizenship. And we see that in verse 19. Uh, there's a sharp contrast that happens in, in verse 19. So then uh, marks a, a result from what was previously presented. So then, uh, it, it changes gears. It shows the result. The result is, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. That, that's not your situation anymore. That's not who you are. But rather, it's a sharp contrast, but you are fellow citizens. Fellow citizens. It's the only place that it's used is here, and it's like he coined this word. You are fellow citizens. It's to have the same legal status. And he qualifies this, explains it a little bit better. Fellow citizens with the saints. Wait, what? Me? With the saints? With Abraham? With Elijah? With those guys? Nah. I mean, the, the, the idea here that he presents that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, you were separate from God and not only separate, but you were wrapped up in your sins and trespasses, that's who you were. And what he does is he changes your citizenship to make you with the saints. That is incredible to think about. But not only that, he goes a step further. He says, and of the household of God. You also are made part of the household of God. Now this exact phrase is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Uh, the idea of household has the idea of of not being like furniture or, or a slave, but being a, a family member. So you, you could be in someone's household because uh, you were part of the cattle, you know, or, or you were part of the furniture, or, or you were a slave. But this isn't the idea that's being communicated here. What's being communicated is that this is part of the family members of the head of the household, which, which is incredible to think about that he has done this. Now, th there's a couple passages where this household is used, 
uh, only two other. The first is in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those of the household of faith. Of the household there is the same word that we're, we see here. Uh, we're supposed to do good, especially because there's a commonality between. The other one is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if any provide, uh, if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Now, there, there's a little bit of a uh, thinking that we need to do here as we think about this. Uh, if this is what a believer is supposed to be doing, to be taking care of his own household, and if he doesn't, then he has denied the faith, faith and is worth, worse than an infidel, It'd be kind of hypocritical for God to be demanding that of us when he himself doesn't do that. So by implication, we can say that God does this for us. He provides. He gives what is necessary. This change in status is, is amazing because it's not that we're just in the house like if we were you know, somebody visiting, but we are made part of the family and therefore under his responsibility. Now that's, that's pretty neat to think about. To, to have God as the head of the household, and you're in that household as a family member, this is the work that is being done. Now as we think about this, we think about Christ preached peace, and Christ changed our citizenship. As we think about this, a, a quick application, our citizenship has changed. And sometimes maybe that takes a little bit of time for it to really register in our minds. But other people can have this same citizenship through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. It's unfortunate that many times people know our stands on citizenship matters here in the States, but they don't know about our spiritual citizenship. As in, they know our opinion about a wall being built on the southern border or not. Or they know about certain other political issues. But they don't know where we stand on this. In our citizenship, he changed it. So what we should be advocating more and telling people more about is not about our earthly citizenship and what we think politically should be happening, but it should be about this and how other people can have this, the same citizenship through faith. I got one amen. I got one. I knew, I, I knew there'd be one. There we go. We got another. So Christ changes our citizenship. Christ builds you up in him and with other believers. Let me put this in a context that what is being addressed in Ephesians is being related to the body of Christ or the universal church, or you can call it the Catholic church, whatever you want to call it. It's the body of Christ from Pentecost all the way to the rapture, that group. But we would say that it would be logical that if God is working this, if Christ is working this through the universal church, through the body of Christ, through the Catholic church, if he is working this out, it would also be true that he is doing that through the local church as well. 
I mean, it would be absurd to think that he is working this out in the body of Christ, but local churches don't have to really follow this. I mean, that would just be absurd to think about. So what is true in the body of Christ should be also true in the local church. So as we understand this, we understand he's working this out in the body of Christ, but we also understand that we apply it to ourselves. So as we see this, th this is a kind of a difficult thing to think about. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm not trying to be polemic as we, as we go through this. But let's just look at what the text says. So verse 20, having been built on the foundation, it's a past action that was happened. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, uh, it's another way of saying on the word of God, Christ himself being the cornerstone. Now, the word cornerstone could be also understood as the keystone, as the one up at the top, but since they're using foundation here, it's best to understand it as the cornerstone. The cornerstone establishes the direction that the building is going to be in, uh, where it's going to go, what, what angles it's going to have based on the cornerstone. So the foundation is based on the cornerstone. And it says uh, himself, in whom, in whom the whole building being fitted together. So it's gone from uh, a past action to a present thing that's happening, it's being fitted together, is growing presently into a holy temple in the Lord. It goes from something past to what is being worked out in Christ, which is to grow the believers into a holy temple of the Lord. Now, you think about this. This is the work that God is doing. And furthermore, it goes further and say, in whom, as in, in Christ, you uh, also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. There's the foundation, which supports the structure, and it's the apostles and prophets, which is the Bible. And then you have Christ doing this work to grow, and he's growing it into the direction of a holy temple. Now, the questions we have to ask ourselves, am I working alongside of Christ or am I working my own agenda? Because what Paul is presenting here, after developing all this incredible doctrine about God saving us, he concludes the chapter with unity. Out of all the directions that he could have gone is there is this unity that happens based on all that God has done. And what he says in the present that he is working out is to grow into a holy temple, being fitted together, the different parts being placed together. And the question is, are we working for that or are we working against that? See, it's really hard... <laughs> It's really hard to be fitted together if uh, Kirthi and I are, are talking bad about Foy and then we, we get together with Foy and it's going to be awkward, won't it? I mean, it's going to be really awkward. We're just going to have to kind of sit there. In other words, if I am going around talking bad about individuals, if in my spirituality as a leader, 
I'm sharing different prayer requests about other people. Now, it's not gossip and slander. It's just sharing what the Lord is doing or the work that the Lord needs to do. If I try to self-justify myself in that way, what am I doing? I'm not working for. I'm working against. Because he is working to put together. And I can go in different corners and talk with this group. Hey, and it's working against the work that Christ is doing in the church. If he's doing it in the body, he's doing it in the local church. The outcome should be a unified church from what he's doing. And the question is, am I working alongside of Christ, or do I have my own agenda? I really would like to change the paint here. Boy, I wish they would change the paint. I'm kidding about the paint. But I bet I could drum up a force of people that would like to change the paint, and we could talk bad about the people who don't want to change the paint. I, I bet you I could, by the end of the week, have a group of five or ten. Well, let's pray for those people who don't want to change the paint. God is working to unify, to fit together. Am I pushing my own agenda? Or am I working alongside of what Christ is doing in the body? It's easy to fall into this, especially as you get further, further, higher, higher into leadership. The person that just shows up on a Sunday that don't know what's going on, but the more you're involved, the more prayer requests you start, you start sharing. And furthermore, you can't tell the difference between what is being gossiped about and slandered with what's being shared to pray for. What is Christ doing? He's building something together, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And the question is, do we have such a place here? And I think, well, if you leave it to me, it eventually will be like that. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the case. God is working, and I get alongside God's side, not on my own side. Now, as we see this, there's three quick applications. Christ gives us our direction. Christ gives us our direction. As the cornerstone, he sets the direction. Which way the building's going to be built? He does that. And the question is, does Christ set the direction for my life? Or, or do I have my own arbitrary standards? I, I have these things that I value. And like I said, it could be people of my age, it could be people that look like me, it could be it could be people that have my type of education. We are the group. If, if Christ sets the direction, none of those things, those are artificial standards. The Bible is our foundation. Uh, is the Bible your foundation? 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 says that God has given everything we need in the Scriptures for holy living. Yet many times... We'll turn to all types of stuff. We'll watch TV shows, talk, listen to what, it's Dr. Phil. Other, we'll listen to a bunch of stuff. We'll go ask our unsaved neighbor what we should do. The Bible is our foundation for holy living. Christ is building us together. Paul praised God for his predestination, his election being redeemed by Christ, being adopted, being sealed by the Spirit, 
And it all moves towards this unity. A unity based on the glory of God. We are being fitted together. And you're like, I don't want to be there. God's fitting us together. He's placing us. Not beside that person. Yes, beside that person. He is working this out for His glory. Not for our comfort. That's what He is doing. And the question is, do we get alongside of God and work with Him? Or do we start a new path somewhere else? We can do that. There's no blessing there from the Lord. We just get reduced down to just a, a club. We see that Christ preached to you to make you a fellow citizen and to build you up with other believers. We talked about how at the beginning that there are some standards people put for unity. They want to see people of their age group or people that look like them, that dress like them, that have the same vocabulary or, or sometimes the education. Those are shallow artificial standards by which you should consider a church. You should seek if they are glorifying God. They're seeking His righteousness. If they're seeking to do the work that God has, which He is bringing into unity to be together. Let's pray. Father, there's some here that maybe have no unity because they've never accepted Christ as their Savior. They're not uni unified to you, and therefore there's no unity in their family. Father, I pray that today they can repent of that. They can trust Christ as their Savior. Father, I pray for us here that are saved. Maybe we have a very pious desire, but it's not the desire that you have. I, I pray that we'll repent of it, that we see that you are doing this work of unity, of unifying, building up together, and that we'll participate in that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please